yeah, I did not realize a gain at all. In fact, I realized a loss because that position went to zero. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Jack Farley. Jack, are you ready to join the mission? I am so ready. How could I not be after that fantastic intro? (laughs) We are going to help a million people. Now, let's get you and how you're helping people out to the world here. So let me just introduce you to the audience Jack is the host of Forward Guidance Podcasts, a podcast I listen to regularly. He's interested in all things liquidity, macro, and central banking. Jack graduated from Brown University with a degree in economics and has done nearly 500 long-form interviews on investing and macroeconomics. You can find him on Twitter at JackFarley96, which I'll have a link to that and all other items in the show notes. Jack, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, thank you, Andrew, for that very kind introduction. I So the term unique, I just start by saying that what you and I do is very rare and there aren't a lot of people doing it. Yes, everyone knows that the podcasting world is, you know, there's a over there's a saturation. Everyone wants to have a comedy podcast where it's just a couple of friends talking about sports, but like actually doing interviews about finance. Yes, there are a lot, but there, there aren't as many people who do it as prolifically and as a full-time gig. So I sort of view it as just go where the where there's no competition. Like if I wanted to be a shortstop for the New York Yankees, if I wanted to be in the top 100, you know, you're competing against so many people. But if you want to be excel in a field where it's very niche and you're not competing against that many people, your odds of success are a lot higher. I'd say in terms of what I tried to bring to the podcast mm. that's unique is I'm not an expert. I you know haven't worked in the financial markets for real as a, as a as a trader, but I'm attempting to understand it on a level that I think is typically like a little more than what you'd see on the newscasting. And I think that what's great about podcasting is it allows you to go in depth. And uh, yeah, I do I do a lot of episodes like you. You know, it's kind of interesting for the listeners out there. Let's maybe we talk behind the scenes a little bit because I'm a, I do my podcast as a very small part of my week. I batch all my interviews in a short period of time. I'm boom, 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 and then it's done. And my type of interviews are not the type where I have to do a huge amount of prep, get myself ready. And then they're not long, long form. I mean, sometimes we can go on for long, but generally, I've kind of designed it that way because I've got a lot of other things that I'm doing in my life, but I feel like what you're doing is a lot more dedicated and it'd just be interesting. So the audience kind of heard how I do it there. And I'm just curious if you could explain like, what's the background of where does this podcast forward guidance fit into your life and how do you do it? It's a full-time job and I'm thinking about it very frequently. I'd say I'm, I just do the same thing that you do, but you have this whole other life. And I, I don't know, I don't know how, how you do it. I mean, 
I could do three interviews in a day, four interviews in a day, but it really takes it to, out of me. And I feel like a 20 minute interview is very tough if you, if it's going well, you know, if, if it, I, I don't know, I'm sure you've done all these fantastic interviews that are 20 minutes. I don't know how you press stop, you know, it's just it's tough. And you know, some podcasters do three, four, five hours. I mean, I've seen interviews about Bitcoin and like crypto is enormously complicated, but Bitcoin itself, the te- technology, very complicated, but the idea of Bitcoin as money, it's a five minute conversation. It's, it's like there are 21 million of them, but I, you know, that's the end of the conversation. But I've seen people do like five hour interviews about Bitcoin as money. And it's like, there's an, there's an audience for that. And you know, there's an audience for a 90 minute interview about the plumbing of Federal Reserve system and the financial system. So, yeah. And if somebody's listening and they think, I want to do what you're doing, what would be your advice kind of when you go back to the beginning, the mistakes you made, the the different things that, you know, that worked, that didn't work? I'm just curious, just because I'm listening to your podcast over here in beautiful Bangkok, Thailand. And, you know, it's, you know, and then I listen, I'm talking to you and I'm hearing all the commitment that you've got to that. But I'm just curious, like, what, what advice would you give someone who's, you know, serious about about doing it? Well, see, I, I don't want to give like too good advice. And then I create a monster who just, yeah. you know, but um, let's see. I'd say you have to start somewhere where you, you get a little bit of buzz, a little bit of people glomming on. Like you don't want to start with an audience of one mm. because then if you double your viewership, you will have two viewers. And then if you double it again, you have four viewers. So, you know, so you, you want to start with a pretty big bang. I think having, if you're someone who worked in media before and you have a little bit of following, that can be great. The previous company that that I worked at, you know, it was, gave me a lot of opportunities to do on-camera interviews. And I'm you know using those skills in the show today. My podcast for guidance is video as well as audio. Mm. And yeah, I think it, it can really help to start from having done a lot of them before. I'd say it can be really tough for someone to sort of have a full-time job and then launch this on the side. I think, I mean, you've done that, but you're, you're in the financial world. So that was your, your way to get, to get into it. And I, I lastly say like, don't do it unless you love it because it's going to become the work that you're going to have to do is going to become real work as in unpleasant work very soon if you don't love it. <laughs> and one other question is, you know, how should someone think about monetizing I look at myself and because it was kind of a sideline thing and actually I started it, you know, at a time where I felt like I really need to reach out more. I'm kind of stuck in my office. I'm an analyst. I just dig down deep and I do my work. And I saw it as a way of kind of forcing myself to get out and talk. I know I have the skills there, but if I don't force myself and have some kind of structured way of doing it. And so I saw it like that and I saw the value of building my relationships and I didn't have a clear monetization path. And sometimes I regret that because I think that my podcast isn't aligned with any particular product. Like I look at Amy Porterfield, she has online courses, she has a podcast, I like what she does, I've attended her courses and it's like perfect alignment. She does an episode, it's exactly about what you wanna know if you're gonna do an online course and then you go to her website you get the materials that she provides related to that episode. And then she says, okay, why not take the online course? So there's like this perfect alignment that I never got. And now I see the pros and cons in it, but I'm curious, like how should a, a beginner think about monetization or that type of thing? So the first question, first thing I say is if you're truly a beginner, don't think about monetization because you're not going to 
make any money because if you're a beginner, you don't have that many viewers and it is, it's not going to be worth that much. Any, like, I don't think I'm at the point really where monetization should be what I'm thinking about the most, because I feel like if I focus a lot on content now, I can grow it so much more. And then in the future, so you're, you're fine as guy, like the, the future mm. value will be worth. I, I am thinking about it a lot. And you, I guess you want to have sponsors who are aligned with your product where your audience is interested in their product. And also they recognize the value of, of the podcast. I mean, I, you, know, you know this, that it can be sometimes difficult for people to track how times, let's say I have a TV show and Swiffer <laughs> the mop runs an ad and it can say, oh, 40,000 people watch this. For some time, like the people who are paying all this money for the TV ad, they just accept that. Mm. Whereas if they sponsor on your show and you know, 100,000 people down listen to it, for some reason, they specifically were like, well, how do we know how many people bought it? Like, can you, can you do a code? So they want attribution, which can be very difficult. But end of the story, podcasting is the future. I'm super bullish on podcasting and I'm pretty bearish on TV and legacy media. I think excellent work is being done there, but it's just like, where's the growth, you know? And you got to, that's one thing I say is go where the, the growth is. Like mm. if you're going to work at an industry that is like slowly dying and decaying, like expect that, know that that's the industry that you'll be going into. Don't expect like, oh my God, how come like they're not paying for my dinner? It's like, because the industry itself is dying, you know? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good uh, lesson. What was your what was, what was, what was, about sponsor, sponsorship and monetization? Yeah, I, I feel like that's one model of the course model where, mm. okay, I'm Jack Farley and people listen to my show and the sponsor is me because I have all these courses. That's good. But I feel like it's a recipe for a good podcast, but not a great podcast. I feel like because the goal is to just make as much money as possible for you, you're like, you're not doing, pursuing absolute truth. And I actually feel right. like pretty well about it. Like, I feel like you should be making the best content possible and then sponsorship monetization should be second. And like people will pay you even more because you'll get even more views because the content is so good. You know, yep. if people can tell the difference between, oh, this is actually, okay, oh, this is good content. And I actually, I, I like this. I'm learning. It's hitting all the buttons, you know, the emotional buttons about the Fed's balance sheet, blah, blah, blah. Right. People can tell between something that's just hitting the buttons and something that's that's really good. And Long term, the stuff that's really good is is going to grow the best. The most. Yeah, I mean, when I listen to your podcast, I get the feeling like like you've got a list of questions you want to learn, you want to get information from this person, and try to understand it. Which brings me before we get into the big question of my podcast, I'd like to just you know you've done so many different interviews on banking system and particularly you know U.S. banks and what's going on there. I have a portfolio allocations I do for clients here, and we made a small allocation to banks, a global bank ETF, because some signals were turning a little bit positive. And then a week later, Silicon Valley Bank goes boom, and it went down that portfolio. The ETF went down a bit right from the beginning, it bounced back a bit and then it started to go down and you know, it's concentrated in large banks. So they're actually gaining probably from it, but having been a bank analyst and knowing from my own perspective that I don't want to be in something that's a small part of the portfolio that I got to sit there and defend for the next, you know, six months. And so I decided to exit that position and just watch it unfold. 
But I'm just curious, from all the different interviews that you've done, what is your perspective on kind of where we're at with this banking situation in the US? Is it a crisis that's going to unfold and explode? Or is it a small impact that's been dealt with? And we'll move on from that. It's funny, everyone who's at a different part with different interests, uses a different word to describe it. So if you're in the media, and you want to generate buzz and clicks, you say it's a crisis. And I'm, I'm in the media, so I call it a crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree it is a crisis. But if you're in the bank industry, you say <laughs> it's just a little bit of stress. Everybody you know? calm down it's here. Tremor. It's a, yeah. So like if someone's interviewing the Bank of America, they're like, it's a tremor. It's not, it's not even, it's not even a, it's a little bit of stress. So before I answer your question, and I, and I will, I want to say that I think the guru business model is like steroids in that. Short term, you can have a lot of success, but long term, you're doomed to have some consequences. So, yeah, I'm not a guru. I don't make predictions. I have views about individual stocks, the stock yep. market, banks, bonds, and you'll rarely hear me say that on on the show, just because it's not even for a noble reason. It's just there's no benefit to me making a prediction <laughs> because if in terms of like what I gain, if I'm right, people recognize it as like plus one. But if I'm wrong, it's minus minus. Yeah, exactly. So there's just nothing. It's just a total asymmetric payoff. So we're just tapping into your learning. We're not tapping into your predictions, but that makes sense. I understand that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you get that. Like I can tell you're you're a really humble guy. You know, despite all the experience that you have, I let's see. I don't know. I mean, it's just been a really interesting time. I feel Mm. like I've learned so much more about the banking sector during this episode. And there's no way I would have been, you know, kicking the tires on these banks and learning mm. about like economic value of equity <laughs> unless there was a crisis. You know what I mean? Right. So everyone, everyone learns stuff during a crisis. Let's see, I mean, can you, can you, well, let's, you know, I think yeah. one of the things that I think we're, we're all kind of wondering is like, we're seeing the commercial real estate industry kind of getting clobbered. Already we saw with the pandemic or with the pandemic response that buildings were hollowed out. People aren't necessarily coming back to those buildings. Those community banks have exposure to a lot of real estate. That's really on the ground work that they do. And if I look at the balance sheet of the banks, particularly let's say regional banks, they have cash on their balance sheet and they have government bonds. They can now get those government bonds over to the Fed and get a little more cash. Mm -hmm. But still, they have a large amount and they have some mortgage loans, but they can pass those mortgage loans on to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and get those off their balance sheet and they got cash. So really what they're left with is this commercial real estate and business loans and consumer loans. And I guess the the question is like, is this, you know, the, the Fed can't buy commercial real estate right now from the banks. But one of the questions I have in my mind is, are they going to come up with a vehicle where these guys are going to be in such a trouble that, you know, there's a hundred thousand buildings in America that are never going to have the occupancy that they had in the past. And therefore the economic value of those buildings is going to go down. Is that really a crisis? You know, is that really a problem? And I haven't been in the U.S. in seven years, so I haven't even really seen, you know, what's going on. But I just maybe just your feel from what you've heard from people, you know, and what what you're thinking about that as far as those regional banks. Right. So a lot of great questions in there. I think that when it comes to commercial real estate, I think a lot of the fundamentals weakness 
is in offices because you know I'm at the, I'm in an office right now. But the fact is that a lot of companies, including blue chip corporations, are still allowing people to work from home or do part time work two days mm. a week, three days a week. So just the marginal bid for office real estate and that square footage is just not as strong as it used to be. And I think you can see that in the real estate investment trust stocks like SLG or VNO. So I feel like you're having price discovery in the public markets where you know, you're getting a quote on these things every second. But in the private real estate market, you're not. And on the bank balance sheets where they've lent against this, so they have you know, real estate debt, you're not. It's still being quoted at par. I think almost, it's fair to say, almost all of the stresses in the banking sector that we've seen in the past, we're recording this on, I think, May 10th, has nothing to do with that. I think that's all to come in the future. And you know, the shoe will drop. How heavy of a, of a blow it will be, we'll see. But I'm pretty confident that everything that we've seen, most of what we've seen, has been interest rate risk related, not credit rate risk, not, not fundamentals of the, of the loans on the asset side and the liability side. And, you know, as a former bank yep. guy, you know a lot more about this than I do, right? Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, it's like the Fed dropped a bomb in the middle of the ocean and there's this massive wave that just goes, whoosh, and there's just one. And if you can survive that one, you know, okay, now you recover and okay, now that, now we go back to kind of normal and what are, what are the issues that these banks are facing? So yeah, I would say that's, you know, one angle to it is that it's just a, kind of a one-off. I mean, I was always kind of a surprise that the Fed raised rates so aggressively. I just thought that that's such a dangerous thing, but you know, what do I know? But yeah, go ahead. most important question of this whole interview is the one that I'm going to ask you right now. And that is now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, Andrew, from the name of the show, I knew this question was coming. And I have to say, it's not even close <laughs> because unless things go disastrously wrong, you know, the most you can lose is, is everything. So the, you know, the, the least you'll be left with is, is zero unless you use margin, which you know, we don't recommend, <laughs> obviously. But yeah, this is an investment that purely went to zero. And so the circumstances that went into it actually started very fortuitously. I had gotten quite bearish on the market in... February of 2020. And just another thing I want to say is like, I is a really important skill is to know when you were right because you were smart and made a decision versus when you were lucky. This is purely on the, the latter thing. Like, I realize now it's just because I was consuming a lot of macro content that was quite, quite bearish, mm -hmm. which is not a good track record for, you know, long term track record success is just like do what the people in the podcast are saying. Like, but I got quite bearish on the market. So I bought a lot of put options on the, the markets and individual stocks, but in particular, Tesla. So I bought a lot of probably 30-day, 60-day, 90-day options on Tesla in January, really honestly in February. So I actually timed it perfectly. So, and these stocks, you know, as you know, all individual stocks crashed throughout early March and the volatility on them also crashed. So I like I made so much more money than I even thought was possible because it's like I unrealized on the realized thing I probably made like it was a four bagger five bagger but then because you, the implied volatility was so much more expensive and I was long volatility it was like a twenty bagger so I literally you know and, and at the time 
you know, I was young to the investment world. You know, my, my first investment actually was in a pharmaceutical company in 2014 that actually like weeks after I bought it got cut in half. So, I, you know, which I actually think is a good thing. It's mm. much better to be, to have bad luck in the beginning because you, you, you started to think about it. But that's, a, that's probably my second worst investment. But my, my worst investment, so I went to the time when, you know, people who had bought bonds that were up 5% when the market had crashed 30%, they were feeling smart and good. And they were going around talking about how much money they had made. So I had this huge asymmetric explosion of profitability at the time when the global world like had a giant me- financial meltdown and everyone was, was losing all this money in, in the market. So Which I is, felt- but by the way, this is like a dream, right? That you are... And for the listeners that don't understand options, basically what you're talking about is that you made a bet that particular market or particular stocks were going to go down and you would profit if they went down and they went down. Yes. And then the odds that the market was assigning to that it would continue to go down and be volatile was very high. So just the the particular flavor of security that I was long was like suddenly became the hottest thing, you know, because implied volatility went from like 60 to 200. Mm. I think you know how this story ends. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm anticipating it, but it's uh, interesting. Yeah. So those are the circumstances that led to that environment. So it was very favorable to start off with. What, so you're so- sitting on massive, massive, unrealized gains. Correct. Continue. And... I continued to consume this bearish macro content that, by the way, was not just coming from, you know, individual like alternative sources, but CNBC, Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal. And you know how I can talk into the media later of it's extremely backward looking. Mm. So the media was probably the most bearish on March 23rd, which was the absolute bottom in the stock market. And I continued to listen to it. And when the stock market, you know, rallied from March 23rd to April 1st, I was told it was just a bear market rally and I believed it. So, you know, my 20 bagger became a 13 bagger and then the 13 bagger became a eight bagger. And oh, the market continues to grind higher. The bear market rally is coming. And yeah, I did not realize a gain at all. In fact, I realized a loss because that position went to zero. So, you know, $1 to $20 to zero. And Looking back, like I knew when that happened that that was really dumb and I was, you know, embarrassed about it. But like looking back, I just realized just how huge of a mistake it was because even if you know, it went from 20 to 13, you still should monetize. Even if it went from 20 to a dollar 20 cents, you still should monetize it. Like that's not the market doesn't know your position, your PL, you know, profit loss does not know that it was a 20 bagger. It's still, it's still, <laughs> you know, the fact that it's a, you were up 20% on that. So that so, it was a, it was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. One of my guests recently said one of the things that I loved and I just never forget it. He says, the market is a predator. <laughs> <laughs> Coming after your money. And I think it, it is in a way because the investors are predators and they're going after the market, but the market, yep. so everyone's just going after each other, trying to beat the market mm. and alpha can only be gotten if someone else loses. And I really do think that's to be, to be true for, mm, for yeah. trading. The market itself is not zero sum, but, yeah. but stocks are and trading is. So yeah, it's, it's really tough to beat the market. And you know, I made a tweet maybe about a year ago when I was having some favorable results as well, when I, you know, on a certain thing that the certain time horizon that my you know, brokerage tracked, I had beaten the market. And I said like, the ultimate hack is just to beat the stock market 
And then as soon as you do, just invest in the S&P 500 for the rest of your life. And then you'll always <laughs> be done it. Of course, I did not listen to my advice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I try to teach, particularly, I, I wrote a book called How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market, which I wrote for women. In fact, I wrote for five women, which are my five nieces. And when they graduated from high school, I gave them each $3,000, which was the minimum to set up a Vanguard account. And then I got them started in investing. And I basically just told them, just buy the Vanguard VT fund. It owns 9,000 stocks, you know, and just contribute to that. But what I try to help them understand is you got to separate you hear in the podcast, I say, create, grow, and protect your wealth. What I didn't realize when I was young, I mean, I still did pretty well, but that the first thing you need to do is set up your wealth creation engine. And that is either a business that you own, or it could be your salary. If you're making $10,000 a month and you're spending 9,900, well, you're not generating much savings, but if you can say earn 10,000 and spend 6,000, You've generated 4,000 in savings. You've created wealth of 4,000. Now the question is, how do you then view that creation of wealth and shift it into the growing? And that's where I look at the stock market. So that's why I say create, grow, and then protect after all the work I've done on the podcast. But let me ask you, how would you summarize the lessons that you learned? That's a great, great question. Number one, don't be cocky. When you a windfall is bequeathed to you to the market and your know, fortune has assigned you lucky enough to be the one who wins the day, don't assume that you're it's because you're so smart, because most likely it's not. And in my case, it definitely was not. And realize realize those gains and at the very least trim the position down. And you know, honest, honestly, it was it was only you know one. Put option. It went, went up. It was only one put up, one contract. It, it went up by so much that mm. it actually became, became like what I considered a large amount of money. But it was only one contract. So I was like, oh well, if I had five contracts, I'll, I would sell two. But I can't because it's just one. Now I view like you know just I realize that that's so dumb. I, sh- I should have either sold the contract or you know entered into a rolled it down and rolled down to a lower strike bought some of the underlying stock to hedge the delta like i didn't know any of that at all so that's another thing is don't play in markets where you don't know what you're doing unless you view it as the education cost the, the tuition for learning in the market which it kind of was for me mm. but i didn't i didn't realize that at the time and yeah like if you were a doctor and you're being a doctor 70 hours a week at your profession like why would you ever think that you would make money trading VIX futures against someone who does that for their living? They're, that's their doctor. That's their surgery. You know, they're going to crush you like 100% of the time, not 99%, 100% of the time. You know, you choosing Microsoft over Apple against a portfolio manager, you have a better chance there. But yeah, the more complex the markets and the less you know about them, and the more you know, sophisticated the institutional investors are, the more chance you will be crushed over time. But um, let's go. Let's go back to that doctor thing because that's that's a great example of create, grow, protect wealth. The objective of a doctor, you know, that they're they're generating really great wealth through they're creating wealth through their work. And if they can shift their mindset to see the market as a place to grow their wealth, not to create wealth then that can help them to set up a different strategy when they go into that market versus 
I'm going to nail this and I'm going to, you know, I've got the great strategy and I've read all this stuff, you know, no, no, don't view the market as a place you're going to create your wealth, view it as a place you're going to grow your wealth. Yeah, I, I think that's phenomenally true. And yeah, I'd also say, take your profits. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say in my, what I would say about this is that having a, a way of understanding when your portfolio moves in an extreme way, up or down, be prepared ahead of time for what you're going to do. So for instance, in stock portfolios, I have stop losses. I mean, I'm a fundamental analyst and I love the idea of, no, it's getting cheaper. I'm going to buy more, but hey, come on. I cannot survive and my clients cannot survive that down cycle going all the way down, you know, 50, 60% or whatever. And also I know that, you know, when something's going up a lot, take some of that and put it into other parts of the portfolio. So I think that's really, as soon as you've made a major gain, and one of the easiest ways to do this, take half of the position off. Yep. Don't take the whole thing, just take half. And if that's a stock that's crashing, take half that position off. And then you can say, okay, fine, for the other half, I'll let it go down and I'll try to buy more. And for something that's going up a huge amount, take half the position. It's one of the tricks that we can play, you know, for our minds to help us feel more comfortable to do that. But let me ask you, based on what you've learned from this experience and what you've continued to learn, like what would be one action that you'd recommend for our listeners to help them avoid suffering the same fate? They're in the same situation. It's a huge game going on. What do they do? I would say don't play in markets where you don't know what you're doing. Like at the time I would have said, oh, I can't cut my position in half because I only have one contract. Mm. Whereas now I said, you could roll down the strike, you could buy the underlying, you can sell the contract, you can sell the underlying. And yeah. And if you do want to have the tuition be your cost, do it on a stock that costs $5 where, you know, the option is five cents. So your $5 can turn into $50 and then $0, which feels a lot nicer. Keep it simple. All right, what? let me ask you, what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Obviously, there's your podcast. Are there any others? Or tell us about also, you know, what should a listener expect if they go to your list, listen to your podcast? They should expect a deep dive conversation on finance that is typically associated with what's going on now. So I've been doing a lot of bank episodes, but I also like to incorporate longer term themes. Like I just did a history you know, interview about the Federal Reserve's, not just its founding in 1913, but changes that were made to it in 1917 that actually enabled it to sort of print a lot more money because of uh, you know various, various things. So yeah, I'd say a deep dive, long form, intellectual honesty, balls mm -hmm. and strikes. I try and break things down for the audience because a, a lot of things are complex and like I'm learning in real time too, along, along with the audience. But yeah, like it's like going to be, you know, if you watch one of the TV networks here, this is really salesy, sounds like a little mm. cocky, but if you watch one of the TV, like finance networks, that's going to be like drinking a beer and like, well, listen to my show for guidance is going to be like doing, you know, psychedelic or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> With a glass of wine. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is not crack. Yes. All right. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? grow the show a lot and produce kick-ass content. And just this, give us an idea, like how many episodes you feel like it makes sense in the next 12 months for you? Like, what does it mean by grow the show? Just the amount of listeners on 
YouTube as well as audio only. So the show as a podcast, we heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the other podcast apps, and then on YouTube as well, under the channel called Blockworks Macro, which is sort of the parent company. Yep. And Four Guides is the name of the show. So yeah, just that total number just should go up. Like a moving average of that should go up. Mm-hmm. And if it does move up by a lot, I'll be happy. And if it doesn't move up, I'll be uh, you know not happy and motivated to do it again. Uh, in terms of yeah, at, like it's so to be fair for the audience, it's an interview program like yourself. So it's mm. you know, never just me; it's me and someone else. Sometimes me and two other people. Like I've you know done a lot of interviews with Joseph Wang, the Fed guy who yep. has you know blown up over the past year, mm. and we sometimes you know have have another guest on, yeah. but it's not just me. So like it's it's a lot better than just just me. Like I'm you know I I fundamentally don't view myself as someone who like has a lot to say about markets. Like, and if I do, it's because I've heard it from a guest, you know what I mean? So yep. it's always like the, the guests are really what drive it. So it's all about having the best guests. And yeah, I'm really excited about some of the guests who are coming up on forward guidance, like over the next month, two months, I'm having on Sheila bear who you know used to run the federal deposit insurance corporation who shut down the largest bank in American history. Like for mm. record, First Republic was the second largest bank. Right. Silicon Valley Bank was the third largest bank. Like she shut down the largest bank in 2009. I'm having someone on who used to be on the Federal Open Market Committee at the Federal Reserve, having him on in a month or two. And yeah, I'm targeting a lot of big names. So uh, yeah, that's exciting. More guidance, block uh, macro. Yep. And I'll have links to that in the show notes and you can just type it into the podcast app that you listen to forward guidance and you'll enjoy it. I'm sure as much as I do. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Jack, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Thank you for the It's an honor to be alumni. I feel like a winner for having been on this show. And I, I, I you know, can't believe that I haven't heard of this before you emailed me. And I'm really glad you did because you've, you've done a phenomenal job. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really glad that you, I'm really glad of this conversation. Well, we're glad to meet you and learn from you. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.